Don't you always want to be the best you can be? The Frankie Boyer Show. What is this? It's more than a lifestyle show. It's a show about living in today's world. I think something is happening. Frankie enthusiastically brings an amazing eclectic mix to the airwaves. You got that right. One of the reasons she's earned legions of loyal fans is very simple. When you listen to the Frankie Boyer Show, you just never know what's going to happen next. So listen for yourself. Here is Frankie Boyer. And it is nice to have you with us. You know, our first guest is coming to us all the way from from over the pond, as they say, in London, one of my favorite places. By the way, I just absolutely love London. And Marianne is a London-based journalist and broadcaster who's worked for The Times, The Independent, The Financial Times, the BBC. And she has researched her book, which really looks at the gap between why women are taken less seriously than men and what we can do about it. The new book is out, and Marianne Seekhart, welcome to the program. The book is called The Authority The Authority Gap, Why Women Are Taken Less Seriously Than Men and What We Can Do About It. And welcome to the program. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. Where do you want to begin with this conversation, Marianne? And because every single woman, if you were to ask any of us, any of us, we have stories. That is so true. And, you know, when I was writing this book, if a woman asked me what it was about and I told her, she would just say yes and then give me an example of, you know, how she was a boss and she was mistaken for the secretary or, you know, she made a point at a meeting and no one took any notice and a man made exactly the same point 10 minutes later and it was treated like the second coming. You know, women understand this instinctively and immediately. When I told a man, in general, not all, but a lot of men, I would tell them what I was writing about. And they'd go, really? I don't think that's true. <laughs> and they would, start, they would start, in fact, mansplaining to me from a position of complete ignorance why my thesis was wrong, even though I was the one who spent years researching it, thereby actually proving the very point of the book. That women's expertise gets challenged a lot more than men, particularly by men. And so, you didn't even see the irony of the fact that they were illustrating the very phenomenon I was writing about. So this is obviously something that affects all over the world. So not only in America, but in London and in England as well. Oh, yes, for sure. I mean, all over the world. I mean, it's, you know, it's probably at its worst in, say, Pakistan or Saudi Arabia or Afghanistan. But it even exists in Norway and Denmark and Sweden, you know, which we think of as, you know, the great sort of, um, you know, the great pioneers of gender equality. But it's certainly the case here in the UK and, and, and there in the US. Yes. So, I mean, for instance, a big study was done of women in, in American companies, and they're twice as likely as men to say that they have to prove, they have to provide extra evidence of their competence or that people are surprised at their ability, you know, because what happens is that we are underestimated. Basically, we assume a man knows what he's talking about until he proves otherwise, whereas for a woman, it's just all too often the other way around. And so we might eventually be taken seriously once we prove that we're really good at our job, but we just have to work so much harder to prove it. 
I, I remember years and years ago, I was very, very young and there were some very powerful women that I worked with and I used to call us Women United and management said to me, I, I'm not kidding. They said, could you stop using that phrase? And wow. I said, but why? Why? It's, you know, it was done with such love and affection. Yeah. And after all, men have been united helping each other out since <laughs> since the beginning of time. So it's about time women did it too. Yes. So, um, but it was squashed. And I remember thinking back then, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, you know, I never would have been spoken to in this job the way the men were. I never, you know, I, I, I have so many stories and as I'm sure you do too, as a woman in broadcasting. Oh, absolutely. In broadcasting in newspapers. Yeah. Um, I, I, I put a few of the stories in the book. Actually, there was, there was one where I'd been at a, I was at a conference and uh, sitting next to this guy who was also delegated at the conference at dinner that night. And he asked me what I did. And at that time, I led a sort of portfolio life. So I said, well, I, I didn't know which of the bits of the portfolio he'd be most interested in. So I said, well, I write a political column for the independents and I chair a think tank and um, I sit on the Council of Tate Modern and I'm on a couple of boards, do a bit of charity work. He said, oh, you're a busy little girl. I was oh my gosh. Prime Minister. I was in my 50s. <laughs> he called me a little girl. <laughs> Can you imagine? Yes, I can. Oh, because my. that's what happens. Imagine so, saying that so, to a man. Oh, you're a busy no, boy. No, no. We would never say that to a man. We would never say no. that to a man. The double standards just are just sickening at, at, and, and still existing. Still existing. 2022 still existing. What can women do about it? And, and that's the question. What do we do about it? How do we, how do we handle the slippery slopes? I mean, my, you know, my main message in the book is we've got to stop. We've actually got to stop asking what can women do about it, because it's not women's fault. It's the way we perceive women that's at fault. And therefore, that very much includes men. So what can we all do about it is a really good question. I mean, what women can do about it is difficult because every time you complain about, say, being interrupted at a meeting or the fact that someone else gets credit for your idea or something like that, people will say, oh, no, you're, you're just being paranoid or prickly or oversensitive or whatever. It's very, it's very hard to call out this sort of covert sexism. So the best thing you can do as a woman, actually, is to try to recruit an ally who will say, um, you know, suppose you get interrupted at a meeting. Um, the ally will say, oh, hang on, I was really interested in what Frankie was saying there. Or suppose someone makes a point, exactly the same point that you made, mm -hmm. and gets all the credit. Mm -hmm your ally can say, oh, I'm so glad you agreed with what Frankie said earlier. You know, that sort of thing helps. But I, I don't think that women need to change. I think we all need to change in our perception of women. We need to stop underestimating them. We need to stop assuming that they're not going to be as good as they are. Uh, and we need to, you know, internalize the notion that women can actually be very expert and very competent at, in all sorts of fields, including what used to be traditionally quite male ones. So how... How, let, let me go back for just a moment because you know and I know that when, when a woman becomes assertive, they use the B word. Where I know, and this, yeah. This, that's this like the, really biggest, the biggest problems, isn't it? Yes, the it biggest is. problems. Or, or, or a woman is emotional because they, 
they have, you know, they're more vocal and verbal. So we become more emotional. Yeah, yeah. And actually, these double standards are what really, really keep the authority gap as wide as it is. Because if we're not confident or assertive enough, no one will take us seriously. But if we are confident and assertive enough, people dislike it. And they start using words like, as you say, the B word or or we're aggressive or abrasive, strident, bossy, overbearing, you know, ball breaking, st- uh, scary. You've heard all these. And these are adjectives that are never used of men who show exactly the same character traits, being confident or assertive or, or showing leadership. And that's because we still feel uncomfortable with women, women behaving in a way that has been stereotyped as a male type of behavior. You know, being confident, being assertive, being a leader, we think of as being male. Whereas we think of women as being gentle and unassuming and kind and nurturing and warm and all these things, which, you know, aren't going to get you very far in your career, unfortunately. And so there is this terrible double standard for women and for men. And the only way through, really, for women, if you're going to be as confident and assertive as men, which you've basically got to be to be taken seriously, is to overlay an enormous amount of warmth onto it so you don't become dislikable and threatening. And so it means that women have to smile more, they have to use humor, they have to be very emotionally intelligent and, you know, aware of everybody's feelings in the room, particularly the men's feelings. And, you know, I don't see why we should have to do this. But frankly, the world being the way it is, it is probably the only way we can navigate through this awful double bind. So in your book, you really talk about and and there are so many stories about women why women are still taken less seriously than men and this is not just something that you're dealing with in london but but you're saying the research is showing that it's everywhere yeah Marianne? yeah i mean i've got an enormous amount of research here mainly because i knew that there would be a lot of skeptical men saying oh no no you know this is just this is just polemic or you're just being paranoid. So the book is absolutely packed with evidence showing this. I mean, even at the most senior levels. So for instance, and an amazing study. Hold on. I'm going to let you, wait a minute, wait. Marianne, I, I need oh. to take a break because we've got to, I, I'm sure. so engrossed in the conversation, but we're, we're right at the uh, break time. So let's take a quick break. Give us the best website and we'll be back in just a moment more with Marianne. It's uh, MarianneSeacart.com. Or if you just Google we'll, the authority gap, you'll find it. And we'll be right back. Frankie Boyer, Biz Talk Radio. I am woman, hear me roar, in numbers too big to ignore. And I know too much to go back and protect. Welcome back. It's Frankie Boyer. Marianne Sighart is with us. She has spent 20 years as assistant editor and columnist at the Times and won a large following for her columns on politics and economics and feminism and parenthood and life in general. You have heard her on radio. She's a broadcaster and BBC and it goes on and on and on in her new book, The Authority Gap, Why Women Are Still Taken Less Seriously Than Men and What We Can Do About It. And Marianne, you were about to share with us a story and, and I uh, we had to go to break. So let's go back to that. 
Sure. Okay, so this big academic study was done of U.S. Supreme Court proceedings. And you don't get much more authoritative than being a U.S. Supreme Court justice. And it found that although women made up only a third of the justices, they suffered two-thirds of all interruptions. In other words, they were four times more likely to be interrupted than their male colleagues, 96% of the time by men. So, you know, here is a classic example of what I call authority gap behavior. You know, if they were taken as seriously and, and as respected as much as their male colleagues, they wouldn't be interrupted four times as often. Isn't that maddening? Gosh. Yeah. It, it, it really is. What about it the really millennials? What, have you done any research with younger people? Tell me, I'm hoping, tell me you have good news. Well, do you know, the awful thing is, I was really expecting the biggest surprise in my research was that young people seem to be almost as bad as older people when it comes to this. Oh, and I gosh. was really surprised because, you know, the antennae are so acutely attuned to any sort of, you know, racism, transphobia, um, homophobia. Actually, when it comes to sexism, I'm afraid to say that young men are pretty sexist too. And, you know, for instance, a study was done of biology students in in a U.S. college. And they were all asked, who's the smartest and best informed in your class? And they were asked this all the way through the year. And the young women, on average, were very accurate in their estimation of which, you know, which, which of the other students were smartest and best informed. The young men overwhelmingly chose other young men, even if the, the young women were smarter and better informed. And, uh, and this bias actually got bigger throughout the year. So the more they were exposed to these really clever young women, the more they dismissed them. Um, I would, I would suspect that that would be older, but not younger. I would suspect the older men would be saying, oh, come on, you know, we're over this story. Let's move on to the next. Well, I mean, I, I think, I don't think young men would, uh, I don't think that they're consciously biased. So I don't think it's deliberate in the way that it sometimes is with older men. Uh, but I think they still suffer from this unconscious bias because they've been brought up to believe that they're cleverer than, than their sisters. I mean, a really shocking research study I came across found that if you ask parents to estimate their children's IQ, they will estimate their sons on average at 115 and their daughters at only 107, despite the fact that girls actually develop faster than boys, have a bigger vocabulary than boys, and do much better at school than boys. In fact, all the way through school and college, girls outperform boys, and yet their parents think that they're less clever. So, of course, the boys are going to internalize this notion that they're brighter than, than girls are, and girls are going to probably absorb the same notion, which, which is rather sad, isn't it, given that we know that so IQs, sad. IQs are identical between the genders. It's so, it's so sad that it's so systemic, though. I know. I, it's I mean, really depressing. How, how, do we, how do we just persevere as women because we still are not equal in pay and now your book is saying we're not even equal in our in our thoughts in our intelligence well we are i mean we are just as intelligent as men it's just that we're not always perceived that way um so you know i think what we've got to do is we've all just got to accept that however liberal or intelligent or even female we are we probably suffer from this unconscious bias against women 
And there's nothing we can do about it. It's called unconscious for a reason. But we can at least notice when it starts to rear its head and try to correct for it. So, you know, we, we should start to notice if we suppose we walk up to a man and a woman standing together and we automatically address the man first. Think to ourselves, hmm, why am I doing that? <laughs> or, you know, if we see a woman who is confident or assertive or perhaps, a, you know, a politician, a political leader, and we find ourselves saying, oh, I don't think I like her very much. Think she's a bit abrasive or she's a bit aggressive we can say to ourselves hmm, i think that's telling me more about my own bias than it is about her as a person yeah you know, we need to know yes. that's the thing i'm just asking people to be more aware and then try and correct for it i i think that we do need to be more aware and i grew up with a a mother that used to say oh no 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 frankie you you can't you can't show how bright you are <laughs> imagine oh, oh. Yes. Oh, that is horrible. I bet she didn't say yes. that to your brother if you've got one. No, she didn't say that yeah. to him. No, not at all. Not at all. Um, we really need to bring our children up differently, don't we? Let's try and make the next yes. generation better at least. I, I'm, I'm hoping so, Marianne, because, you know, it is a stigma that we just need to get over. And, and I think it's an adjustment that and you say it's subconscious we're not even aware we are doing it ourselves that's right do you know I'm, i made a radio program about women's bias against women for the bbc and in the program i asked listeners to imagine a hijacker breaking into the cockpit of a plane and attacking the pilot and then i said now how are you picturing the pilot i bet he's a white middle-aged male and a woman called margaret oates tweeted Driving back from work in uniform, I, w I, asked, I was asked to picture a pilot. And yes, I imagined a white middle-aged male, despite being a female pilot. <laughs> yes, there are so, so few. And, and I happen to know a captain and a few of her friends that were visiting uh, in Boston a few summers ago. And what they have to put up with is just unbelievable in the airline industry. Oh, my gosh. Oh, I bet. I bet. I mean, the more masculine the profession, the harder it is for women. Um, and I really admire those brave souls <laughs> who go and become airline pilots or whatever. Yes, I do as well. And so your your words to us, Marianne, are so important that we really need to, to look at our own bias. We have to look at what we are doing ourselves. That's right. We've got to look at what we're doing. I think employers really have to look at what they're doing. Teachers have to look at what they're doing, not giving boys much more attention than girls in class, which is what often happens. And parents need to look at what they're doing because I do think we can raise the next generation differently. If only we're just more aware and think a little bit harder about you know, what, what we're bringing them up to believe. Stop calling our daughters pretty and our, and our sons clever for a start. Yes, probably. This has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for coming on. The Authority Gap, Why Women why women Are Still Taken Less Serious Than Men and What You Can Do About It is Marianne Sickhart's new book and your website, go ahead and give it, is? Well, you won't be able to spell it probably. It's MarianneSeekhart.com. But if you Google The Authority Gap, you'll come across it pretty quickly. Wonderful. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. It's been really fun. Thanks.
Yes, 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 yes. We'll be back in just a moment. I'm Frankie Boyer. Stay tuned. This is Biz Talk Radio. Take a walk, the sun is shining down. Burns my feet as they touch the ground. Oh, welcome back. It's Frankie Boyer. And I just absolutely love Emily Murphy's new book. It's called Grow Now. Go beyond organic, rewild your land, sequester carbon, support biodiversity. And how we can save our health, community, and planet one garden at a time. Emily, welcome to the program. And as someone who's been doing this, you've been involved from a very young age when you got to be, you got to spend time barefoot playing in your grandmother's land uh, most of the summer. And so you started at a very early age, understanding the power and the importance of playing outside, number one, which we've talked about extensively, and and tasting carrots with the soil still on them. And I bet they were the sweetest carrots you ever had in your whole life. <laughs> Absolutely. I still remember them to this day. Oh, I bet. I bet. You're so passionate about us understanding the power of growing our own food, and we still don't seem to understand it. So so let's talk about how powerful if each of us had a little spot that we could just grow something. It's, it's really quite remarkable, and, and I know for some of your listeners, growing anything might sound like, uh, a pretty scary topic. Uh, I have a lot of people that come to me and they say, uh, everything I try to grow, I kill. It doesn't survive. I, I, I give up. Uh, but uh, I try to encourage people and, and tell them, just just think how good you'll be at this uh, if you give it a go for a solid year and, and you keep experimenting because you never know what will thrive in your particular environment. So if we keep trying... Uh, we can we, we can find success, and through that success, that's where I think we become really empowered through this process of trial and error and experimentation, and pair that with the sheer beauty and magic of being able to step back and say, I did this, I grew this, I grew this myself, and wow, it tastes amazing, or I grew this with my family, and... Uh, we know that children who are raised with homegrown fruits and vegetables have the opportunity to to grow them themselves or at least have some uh, part in the growing of, of that food are more likely to eat fruits and vegetables and, and adults are the, the same, very much the same. And um, there's, there's just something really wonderful about it. it, kind of closes that circle that we have with nature and food and living. I mean, food is life, right? And and yes. to grow some of your own is to take part in something that's really special. And I know that for those of us city dwellers, there are community gardens all over the place. And I am guilty. I'm not taking advantage of them. But there are many plots on Fenway, not near where I live, but the Fenway area and South End that have just like they've carved this whole row of green green space and made it community gardens which is just amazing that we can do that in the city 
It, it really is. And if you look at my book, Grow Now, you'll see that one of the main gardens that's featured, actually more than one, is a community garden. I, um, until last year, when my family and I finally bought our, our, our home, I was gardening for nearly 10 years in a community garden plot. And uh, there's so much that comes with the community garden plot. There's the opportunity to learn and grow um, with others. Uh, community is so important. Just that one word, community. Uh, many of your listeners, I'm sure they remember the start of the pandemic in 2020 when we were basically cut off from community and we realized then how important community is. And I think we also realized how important nature is and being able to, to have that touch point with nature and our gardens are truly, and our food too, is truly one of our most immediate touch points with nature and community gardens make or at least help uh, make gardening more accessible. And uh, and also maybe a little less scary because you're, again, uh, gardening in community with others. Oh, yes. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's a wonderful connection. Absolutely wonderful. And I know that we have a horticultural group in my neighborhood that, that help out in the park and they have this lovely little patch of roses and, and wildflowers that they, they work on. And it takes a lot of energy and effort. And they meet a few times a week during the, the spring and summer and fall months to, to keep the, the gardens looking so beautiful. It, it, it's a lot of work, but they, they are so committed to it. And it's, it's a sense of camaraderie that you just don't ever get. That's right. It's, it's, it's definitely one of those outlets that we can all utilize and, and take part in and, and have this common goal. And that's one of the things I talk about in the book as well, that if, if we're all doing our small bits, small actions shape our world. These tiny acts have big impacts. And uh, whether, you know, it might seem that my little plot of earth isn't by itself making a big difference to the planet, say, because the, the issues we're facing with the planet are really big, uh, but it's making a difference in my life. And, but then when you add my garden plus your garden and your neighbor's garden or that community garden and that park and those beautiful flowers you were just describing, now we're creating habitat, not just for people, but for wildlife, wildlife corridors, living greenways, places of connectivity, again, to use that word, where bees and butterflies and birds have the opportunity to move about a city and move out quite well and thrive, uh, which is really exciting. I think part of I grew that is I grew that for myself and then also for the greater community. And that includes nature. Uh, and our gardens are truly a nature-based solution for so many things, from mental health and physical health to planetary health. And we're far from spring, but I have noticed that I have a, a little tree in my apartment in the city that is the greenest, lightest green little leaves are coming and they're just so sweet and lovely. And I, I, I get such pleasure looking at them. Yeah. It's, isn't that, I, we have buds uh, just starting to show here as well. And there's something, uh, something really wonderful about it. And while I'm still personally wishing for some winter weather, cause I'm in Northern California on the coast where we've had dry weather for the last six weeks. I still want some winter weather, but it's such a joy to see these buds coming out on trees. And what we know is that simply looking at plants brings joy, elevates mood, decreases stress. 
um, and just think what growing them does for us as as people. And these are all things I talk about in my book, Grow Now, and 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 something we can all experience uh, just by growing something even in a container, uh, a set of containers, a uh, raised bed, a community garden, as you mentioned, and and uh, begin this process and, and learn as our gardens grow. Emily, you've been doing this for a long time, and, and for someone that, I don't know if I have the green thumb, you can start small, don't you think? Give us some tips. Absolutely, uh, and that's that's usually the advice I give people, which is, uh, okay, I don't know, I, I'm, I don't know, don't know how to start a garden. Where do I begin? Start small, keep it simple, grow what you love, which is the title actually of my first book, uh, and that's sort of where this second book uh, was also born from. And I, I really do think that it growing anything uh, needs to tell our story as well, and and reflect the things that we love and appreciate. And uh, start small. Start with a few things. Focus on the things that really bring you joy and let those experiences of growing those plants inform you how to grow other plants, care for soil, uh, whether and also compost or, you know, make your own compost, feeding the soil, feeding your plants uh, through the soil. All those all those um, all those know hows come with this with this set with the simple set of uh, of you know, beginning with just a few plants. Absolutely. And you say that connection to nature, reminding us that we are uh, nature, that reminding us that we're only as healthy as the environment in which we live. And that is so critical. It's so critical this day and age. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I think just framing, framing the, our understanding of our world, with that, we're only as healthy as, as the environment in which we live, is really informative. It's informative for, um, you know, city planning. You know, how we how we how we uh, plan our cities, parks, uh, places for people to commune, and also pl- places for people to grow. Um, oh, absolutely. Yeah, and it's also informative how we interact with our own space. Do we maybe um, taking up a portion of your front lawn and adding a garden. It's exactly what you need as a, as a human, but then you're also helping to foster an environment that is healthier for you. And Absolutely. The community. book is called, Emily Murphy's new book is called Grow Now, How We Can Save Our Health, Communities, and Planet One Garden at a Time. Grow Now, and the best website is? You can find me at Pass the Pistol, that's P-I-S, pil.com uh, that's past the pistol and part of a flower and uh, find grow now wherever books are sold find me on instagram or twitter at past the pistol and uh wonderful works of magic thank you so thank much. you so much and we'll be back in just a moment stay tuned frankie boyer biz talk radio Lockdown affirmation. I am strong. I am smart. My survival, now an art. My goal, not simply to survive, but to find a way to thrive. 
And welcome back. It is Frankie Boyer. And it's I was just thinking it's been too long since we've had a visit with Jane Marla Robbins. Welcome back to the Frankie Boyer Show right here on BizTalk Radio. And Jane Robbins, Jane Marla Robbins, was a finalist for CAPS Grant in Poetry from the National Endowment of the Arts. She was commissioned by the Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C. to write and perform the one-woman play Renaissances of Mozart by his sister. She also performed at Lincoln Center in New York City with her one-woman play and verse, Miriam's Dance. And she is with us today, her best-selling self-help book, Acting Techniques for Everyday Life. Look and feel self-confident in difficult real-life situations. And you have just a tremendous amount of wonderful, wonderful poetry books. And poetry has basically taken over your life the past several years. And especially during COVID, Poems of COVID-19 is available, stuck in lockdown for the first three months. And Jane... Welcome. It is a pleasure. Well, it's, it's amazing hearing my credits. I have to tell you, really, did I write all those books? Yes. And are they helping people? Yes. That's, I guess, what amazes me the most, the power of the word. People actually email and call to say, I woke up depressed and I picked up your book and I feel better. Nothing feels oh. better than that, Cole. Wonderful, whether wonderful. It, whether it's Dogs in Topanga, which is a funny book, or even the COVID-19 poems, there's a poem presumably by my dog, but obviously by me. And somehow people start smiling and they get hope. That's the same with my coaching, as you probably recall from our last interview. Somehow, I don't know how I've been given this gift, but I say something funny or I say something real or probably together because I think people digest it better. And and people feel better. Me too. <laughs> um. The the books go on and on. Poems of the Laughing Buddha, Cafe Mimosa, um, Jane, acting techniques for everyday life. This book was written a while ago, and yet it's still so poignant and important today. Well, particularly now, apparently, because people are beginning to come out of their lockdowns and going for job interviews and they feel rusty if lacking in self-confidence because let's face it a job interview is a is an audition that's a tough nut to crack always and they're very simple techniques you can use to go in there or even do it on zoom obviously so that you're your as they say your best self your shining self your funny self your self-confident smart self and they're really simple um, actors have been using them for ages, and I realized that I could use them in real life, having used them on the stage where I did feel self-confident, as opposed to in real life where inevitably I felt, you know, shy and insecure. And uh, so that makes me happy. I mean, one of the techniques I might as well throw out there, right? It's because uh, somebody may be listening who's like, oh, I'm scared to go for that job interview or meet that new person because people are even beginning to, you know, date in a, in a place where they might feel safe from COVID. Uh, Marilyn Monroe in her movie with Laurence Olivier was really intimidated by him. And he was considered the best actor in the world. And her acting coach reminded her of two things she could use. 
one, she should imagine he was Frank Sinatra with whom, with whom Marilyn was having an affair at the time. So that just lit her right up. And actually a sense memory, not only of Sir Lawrence, of um, Frank Sinatra, but also Coca-Cola seemed to turn her on so she could feel the bubbles and taste the taste. And the body remembers sensory. The body is so silly and brilliant that if you even suggest tasting a food, your body will think it's the real food. So she, And she is brilliant in that movie. And she sizzles as if she's, you know, the bubbles from yes. Coca-Cola. I don't know. Yes, absolutely. You know, your, your background, your career, I mean, you've just, you've done so much, but... Um, can we talk about a radical friendship? That was. Oh my goodness! Yes, because it's just about to be done on Saturday. Yes. Oh. Let's. Yes. Um. And it's online. Um. On YouTube, people can. It's. It's the love story for my money between Martin Luther King and a rabbi with whom he was very close, with whom he marched arm in arm. And if you read their writing, sometimes you say, well, if you, if you play a quiz and you say, do you think the rabbi wrote this or Martin Luther King? No one guesses right, because they both had such a view of the world with God and everything, with hope and everything, with equal rights for everybody and everything. But what did you want to talk about, about that play? I love that play because it, I, I love friendship and I love love and I love trying to, you know, I love the idea that people fight for people in the world having more equity, more chance at jobs, yes. being seen as, as equal. I love that you brought that up. Really no, it, it's it's just, it sounds like it was absolutely wonderful. And um, who played who? Did did it, was it ever a movie or was it always on Broadway? Um, was Ed, it always a play? Well, the, the best news of it is that Ed Asner played the rabbi. That's what I thought, yeah. It's a very serious play, but as you know, and I hope your listeners now know I have a sense of humor, he got me 97 laughs in 110 minutes. And because it is a serious play, people were crying when they were in the lobby leaving the theater. Yeah. So it's an extraordinary performance from him, and I've just put it up on YouTube. I put it up for Martin Luther King's birthday, but I think it's such an important piece that I think I'm going to leave it there. Because I think it does open hearts and minds, and it gets people laughing. And I think when people are laughing, you can pop the pill of truth down their throats, because it's a hard pill to swallow, as we know. Oh, and we're out of time. It's never enough time. We have to have you back again, because you just bring such joy, Jane. Marla Robbins. Thank you so much. And the website is janemarlarobbins.com and check it, check it out. And all of her books are on the website and her writings and everything that we've talked about. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Keep up the good work. Bye. Bye bye. And we will be back next time. This has been another edition of the Frankie Boyer show for biz talk radio. Thanks for listening. Make it a great day, everybody. And as always, smile. Fears and sorrow, smile. And maybe tomorrow you'll see that life is still worthwhile if you just smile.